come to our reading now. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, let me pray before we um, start. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that, uh, that uh, my words will be true to your written word, uh, and that between them... Um, they will lead us and point us to Jesus, your living word. Amen. Well, this evening I have been given a title for this sermon, which is Mel Who. On seeing this title, I immediately thought, Spice Girls. <clears throat> who the more senior of you will remember were big in the 1990s, and two of whose members were called Mel, Mel B and Mel C. And there's a prize for anybody who can tell me at the end who did, or what did B and C stand for. Other Mel's who sprang to mind were Mel Brooks, the film director, famous in a much earlier epoch, that is to say the 1970s, for films such as Blazing Saddles, and later for Robin Hood, Men in Tights, um, as well as films with the rare distinction in that it has a colon in its title. Uh, advanced punctuation. <laughs> and then there is, I've got to pronounce this one carefully, I'm going to get it wrong, Mel Giedroyk, co-presenter of the great British Bake Off, and therefore much, much better known than any of the above. 
But who is the Mel of our title? Well, to answer that question, we must first go to the book of Genesis, to chapter 14 and to verse 17. And I would be grateful if you would indulge me by turning it up. It is on page 15 of the Pew Bibles, and I am now going to test Chris's hypothesis and see whether or not the numbering in here is the same. Uh, And it is. Uh, So, um, chapter 14, verse 17, we read this. Um, And whilst you're turning it up, let me just sort of fill in in the background. Abraham, Abram rather, is on his journey still from Ur of the Chaldees in southern Iraq. And he and his nephew Lot, who's been part of the caravan uh, working its way up the Fertile Crescent, they had separated earlier, and Lot was living in the city of Sodom. Now, there was an alliance of local kings led by Kedor Laomer, and they go to war against the king of Sodom and four other kings. Kedor Laomer is victorious, and as part of the spoils and the sacking of the city, Lot and his family have been captured. Lot and his possessions are captured. And when Abram learns that Lot and his family have been captured, Abram carries out a daring night raid. He defeats Kedorlaomer and he rescues Lot uh, and um, recovers him and his family and all his possessions. And we pick up the history at verse 17. So if I read it to us. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shevi, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. We can stop there. Because that is the only appearance of Melchizedek in the whole of the Bible. A search in Bible Gateway yields only 11 hits for Melchizedek, and that's a lot fewer hits than the Spice Girls got. Nine of Melchizedek's hits are on the Hebrews label. In other words, they are to be found in the the book of Hebrews, uh, which leaves only a few others. And in terms of personal appearances... This is it. This is the only appearance of Melchizedek. So stay with it on page 15, and let's ask ourselves the question, what do we learn about the Mel of our title? Well, firstly, we learn, verse 18, he's a king. Secondly, we learn that he's the king of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem. Thirdly, he brings out bread and wine, which is obviously significant. Fourthly, he is a priest of God Most High. He is not the priest of any of the Canaanite religions in the region. And fifthly, he blesses Abraham. And then what happens? Abram gives him a tenth of everything. The plunder from the 
uh, battle with Kedolaema. Abram tithes to Melchizedek. Abram gives 10% to a total stranger. And through this, we begin to understand that this stranger, Melchizedek, is superior to Abraham. We can read it uh, implied in the words which are there. What don't we know about Melchizedek? Um, I've got to be careful here because actually, although this is the last in the current series of sermons about Hebrews, and we're going to move on to um, Kings and Chronicles in a week's time, um, we will come back to Hebrews uh, in uh, later on in the year, and Melchizedek gets a bit more treatment further on. So I'm not going to steal all the thunder of whoever is allocated uh, to that. Um, but what don't we know about Melchizedek? We don't know anything about his history. We have no genealogy for Melchizedek. He just appears here out of absolutely nowhere, and then he disappears. So it looks as though he has no beginning, and it looks as though he has no end. Just hold that thought uh, as uh, we look at the rest. Uh, I want now to ask the question, what do we learn about Jesus from this? Because this sermon is not about Genesis 14. I am uh, charged with preaching to you about Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 10. So we're going to go back to Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 10. But we are going to make a brief stop on the way in Psalm 110 to see why this is significant. And you will find Psalm 110 on page 613 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 110 is one of the psalms which makes prophecies about the Messiah. It makes prophecies about the Davidic king. And uh, we're not going to look at the whole of it, but just uh, come down to verse 4 of Psalm 110. Uh, and we read, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's the prophecy about the Davidic king. And that's reiterated uh, later um, um, when we get uh, on to, uh, on to uh, Hebrews uh, 5. Um, Jesus we know, is a Davidic king. How do we know that? Think of what the crowd said on Palm Sunday. What did they say? They acclaimed Jesus with the words, Hosanna to the son of David. They see that he is the Davidic king. And so we can move on now, remembering that uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We can move on uh, at last to Hebrews 5. And page 1204 uh, of the Pew uh, Bibles, um, which I hopefully already got open in this one. Um, <coughs> in verse uh, 6, we read this again. Uh, I'll start at verse 5. In the same way, Jesus, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And that's a quote from another psalm. And then he says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
And it comes again at the end um, in verses uh, 8 to 10. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The previously obscure Melchizedek has suddenly become rather important. So what is the point here in Hebrews? Well, uh, the first point here is that we learn that Jesus is a priest and he's a high priest. And that causes us to ask ourselves the question, what what is the significance of being a priest? What does a priest do? A priest is somebody who speaks to God for the people, and we learn a bit about that earlier in, in chapter 5. He represents the people to God. He's the one who offered gifts and sacrifices for sins uh, on behalf of the people. So let's unpack this a little bit more. Uh, Jesus is a priest, and beginning at verse 5, let's see what we learn about him as the high priest. First of all, we learn that he is chosen by God, and he's chosen as God's son. If we move on to verse 6, we see that he is to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So here we go. Why Melchizedek? What's the important point here? Um, It seems to me that there are three main reasons here. There may be others. Um, But the ones which which I see uh, are these. Melchizedek uh, himself was not a priest in the order of Aaron. Uh, now, we could spend quite a long time going back over the difference between Old Testament priests and New Testament priests. We really need to know we're not going to do that. But remember, so Aaron, brother of Moses, comes a bit later uh, in the Bible. We find him in Exodus. Uh, Aaron is appointed as a priest uh, after the Exodus, and Melchizedek obviously predates Aaron. So... Melchizedek cannot possibly be a priest in the order of Aaron. There's something different about Melchizedek's priesthood. Remember what I said earlier about how um, because Abram offers sacrifices, uh, or gives, um, or Abram tithes to uh, Melchizedek, it shows that Melchizedek is superior uh, to Abram. Melchizedek is therefore also superior to Aaron's order because Aaron is descended from Abraham and Melchizedek is superior to Abram. A second reason why uh, Melchizedek is important is that Melchizedek appears to have no beginning and no end. We don't know where he comes from. He has no genealogy. And after his appearance to Abram, we know nothing more about him. I'm not anyway suggesting that, that Melchizedek is immortal or was immortal, but the way the story or the way his story is told in the Bible evokes the eternal. It makes us think about things without end. And Jesus is, of course, eternal. And the third reason why Melchizedek is important here and why it's important that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, is that if Jesus is the Messiah, it follows, as night follows day, that he must be a priest in the order 
of Melchizedek. That's what Psalm 110 tells us. What else do we learn about this and what else is important here? The Aaronic priests, the priests in the order of Aaron, had to offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but also for their own sins. Jesus is not an Aaronic priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not only is he eternal, but he also does not need to cleanse himself from sin because, and indeed he is, the sacrifice for sin himself. And as the great high priest, we learn that he prays to God the Father for us on our behalf. Now, there's an important point here. Um, that it's not to say that we cannot pray to God the Father ourselves. Of course we can and we do. Jesus' death on the cross gave us direct access to God. It removed the barriers. The curtain was torn in two, and we can now approach the Holy of Holies ourselves. But also, Jesus is there at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. He is the link between us and God. He is the link, and he is the only link between us and God. And we learn some other things here. Firstly, at verse uh, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Think about it. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus prayed that God would relieve him of the kangaroo court to come, of the torture to come, and the death to come. But God didn't relieve him of those things. There was a higher and more important purpose. And we can learn from this when we pray to God. Our own earnest prayers, sincere and valid and rational, may nonetheless not have interpreted God's purposes. And we need to have patience to wait and to be obedient to his will. And secondly and thirdly in this passage, there are a couple of things which may at first sight seem puzzling, and I don't want anyone to go away confused this evening. Because when we look at verses 8 and 9, we see that they say that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, became salvation. Hang on, I hear you say. Are we not taught that Jesus was always perfect? You may be asking yourself, does that mean that he was disobedient before he died on the cross? Were there other sufferings which taught him obedience, meaning that he was disobedient therefore? I think that's a good question, but I think the answer is not. Uh, On what evidence do I say that? Well, age 12, we learn that Jesus is obedient to his father. He's found by his parents debating with the teachers in the temple courts at Jerusalem. And we read elsewhere several times that he seeks to do the will of God at all times. There are a number of references. If you want to ask me for them afterwards, I have got them written down. Verse 8 must mean that through through suffering, by being obedient to God's will, Jesus learned more about the consequences of obedience to God. And that also is helpful to us. 
Being a Christian is just not a bed of roses. From time to time, it's more like a bed of nettles, or worse. But I hear you say, that does not deal with the words, once made perfect. I suggest that the reference there of being made perfect is to Jesus' death on the cross, where he was able to say, it is finished, whereupon he died. And this perfected the ultimate sacrifice. Well, the last puzzling point which we must address is also in verse 9, where it says he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Eh? Doesn't that contradict the whole of the gospel, I hear you cry? Do we have to be obedient to God in order to be saved? I thought it was salvation by faith alone. It's not by works. And if I'm honest with myself, I know that I break God's laws, you say, and I say, and I am therefore disobedient. Well, there's actually an important practical lesson in Bible interpretation here. If you find something which appears to be inconsistent in the Bible with what you know of the rest of Scripture, pause and think not, aha, it's all a lot of rot, but pause and think it through. God is faithful, God is just, and he does not set us brain teasers, he does not set us obstacles to trip us up. He loves us and he wants us to know and to love him. So probably what appears at first sight to be inconsistent is not in fact inconsistent. So looking at this puzzling point in verse 9, we need to ask ourselves, how is it that we become obedient to Jesus? Well, we become obedient to Jesus by following him and by accepting him and by recognizing him as king. We become obedient to him by giving him first place in our lives as our Lord and our master. Each one of us. So verse 9 is right. We see that Jesus is indeed the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Well, I'm going to conclude now, and um, I'm going to conclude with seven points. And um, you see, if you don't have three seven points, you have to have seven, because that's, that's another good biblical number, isn't it? So seven points. First point, Jesus is the great high priest, and as such, he is interceding for us, and he is praying for us, with God the Father. Point two, that is tremendous. Who of us could want anything better than to have Jesus praying for us? Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. He is your best prayer partner. Third point, Jesus is the perfect priest. Fourth point, he is the eternal priest. He's there for us now He'll be there for your children if you have them, and for their children if they have them, and so on until the end of time. Fifth point, God has high and important purposes. Jesus' own prayers are for relief, but not at the cost of God's will. When we pray and the things that we ask for do not come to pass, 
we should not be discouraged. We can remember that God has different plans for us. Sixth point, the consequences of obedience to God will not always be comfortable. Sometimes they will be difficult, but we see that Jesus went through those consequences with triumphant results. And seventh point, which I guess really is a theory-theological point, but this has been a slightly theoretical-theological sermon, um, is to go back to the question, Mel who? Well, that's the answer, really, isn't it? Mel who? He is mysterious. He has no genealogy. He has no end. And he evokes eternity for us. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we have a great high priest who intercedes for us. Thank you, Lord, that the curtain is torn in two and, Lord, that we can come to you ourselves. But to have Jesus alongside us and there at your right hand interceding for us is a comfort and something for which we are grateful. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you forgive us, uh, that you bring us back to you. Amen.